going to be uh, reading the Word of God here shortly, and you can turn to Psalm 1. It's written for you in the bulletin, or if you have your device, you might find, find it there. Um, and so if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on this his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. We are in between sermon series. Uh, We just finished a series called When God Speaks, looking at the life of Elijah and Elisha. And next week I'm excited to start uh, the letter to the Ephesian church. And so Dan essentially said the Bible is your oyster this week and said whatever is on your heart from God's word um, to preach. So I I thought Psalm 1 was a great passage for a one-sermon sermon series. It's kind of an utterly all-encompassing passage, kind of passage. So let's pray and ask God to help us as we um, dive into this passage. Father, how can a young man keep his way pure? You tell us that by living according to your word. And as we'll see all the more clearly this morning, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. So Lord, I'm thankful as we come here to the most natural setting for our hearts and lives, in your special presence amongst your people under your word. And I pray that that would be our posture this morning that we would set ourselves beneath your word, not above it. Would you teach us this morning? Would we find rest in your son as we just sang, that we are resting in the joy of what you've done? Would we find rest as we encounter him through your word? And it's in his name and for his glory that I pray. Amen. Pastor and author Rankin Wilburn starts one of his books off with a story about a class that was offered at Yale University a couple years ago that had 1,200 students enroll in it. That's almost a quarter of their student body. And it was a class on happiness called Psychology and the Good Life. It was the most popular class in Yale history. It was only offered once because its enrollment uh, affected so many other classes. And Wilburn asked a great question of that phenomenon. He said, why would so many of the most gifted students in America flock to a course on happiness? Apparently, getting into the university of their dreams was not enough. Apparently, the prospect of much career success was not enough. And this story, if nothing else, illustrates the human need for guidance when it comes to finding fulfillment in life. C.S. Lewis put the idea probably even more clearly when he famously said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted 
creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So he's kind of saying the same thing. It's not just highly motivated college students who are experiencing roadblocks in their pursuit of happiness. I think we can all relate at different levels. Left to ourselves, we have a knack for orienting our lives around things that make us lesser versions of ourselves and don't lead to true fulfillment. And that's a major message of this psalm. We enjoy sin more than we enjoy God and his word and the way of God, and we're paying for it. And this psalm is here to kind of sit down with us and give us help. It's going to kind of take a magnifying glass to that mud pie versus holiday at sea contrast that C.S. Lewis gives and make the choice so easy for us, it's hard. And one way to understand how this psalm does this is by seeing three questions that this psalm challenges us with. What do you want? What are you doing about it? And how is that going for you? So first of all, what do you want? A former colleague of mine did the Escape from Alcatraz triathlon. And of course, the first leg is swimming from the island of Alcatraz back to the, the mainland of the city of San Francisco. But it's, it's a very hard swim. It's rough, very rough waters. Of course, there's lots of people around. So it's very easy to get off track, to start swimming in the wrong direction, which you do not want to do, of course. So the trick that he learned from people who had done it before is that while you're swimming, you have to regularly look up and, and find the skyline of San Francisco. And that will make sure, that'll show you to head towards that, you're, you're going the right way. It's a great picture of life. The rough waters of life can easily get us off track. We need to continually be re-centered and asking questions like, what am I living for? Why am I here? What is it that I most deeply want out of life? Are important questions to ask regularly to help recenter ourselves. And this psalm begins in a way that, that gets at that idea. It starts with the word blessed. And uh, it's, the word blessed there is, um, in the original language, in, in the form of an exclamation. Some translations say, oh, blessed is the man. And there's multiple words in Hebrew for blessed, but this one definitely has more of a sense of happiness. Happy is the person. And in 1 Kings, where the queen of Sheba is, uh, has just encountered the wisdom of Solomon, she says, happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. So this psalm, it's even, the, you know, Psalm 1, it's opening up the entire Psalter. They, they view Psalm 1 as sort of this thematic introduction to the entire Psalter. And so it's opening up, talking about the happy life, the good life. And then it goes into, more specifically in the psalm, how to or how not to attain it, which is essentially begging the question, what do you want? Do you want a blessed and happy life? And we'll see later in the Gospels, that is a very important question for our discipleship. In John 1, there's this interesting story where they're the first two disciples who start seeking after Jesus, he turns to them, and in such a Christ-like moment, he asks them, what do you want? Not, what do you know, what do you believe, but what do you want? It's such a piercing question because our wants are at the core of our identity. 
Maybe Pascal was thinking about that question of Jesus, or maybe even thinking about Psalm 1 when he said in his pensees, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others, it's the cause of them avoiding it. It's the same desire in both. And we could add, you know, the reason we have children or we, we play golf or we watch Netflix or go on vacations is all the same end of, of wanting a deeper fulfillment. Pascal continues, the will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. And I love how the, the first question of the shorter catechism that, that our church, part of our catechism, is what is the chief end of man? It starts out asking that kind of question. What is our aim? What is it that will make us most human, the best version of ourselves? And this psalm will help get at an answer to that question. This psalm is saying something encouraging. It's saying there is nothing wrong with pursuing happiness. This is good news for us. The will of the Lord is not that we would be miserable, but rather that we would glorify God as we enjoy him. And it's also saying that happiness is possible, which for some this morning we may need to hear again. It's one thing that we can all agree on in this divided age, that we all want a blessed life. We want joy and happiness. So church, what do you want? What do we want? What is the aim of our life? If, we, if I were to throw a montage of your life up on the screen for us to watch just even the last week of your life, what, what might we conclude having looked at the way you lived your life on what is the aim, what is the purpose, what are you wanting out of life? So what do we want? We all want blessing and happiness and joy. But what does that really mean? What does that really look like? Let's let this psalm put some more teeth on that. The psalm continues by confronting with an even more pointed question. If blessing is what we want, then what are we doing about it? And it it shows this as verse 1 continues and goes into verse 2. Verse 1, it kind of starts in the negative as it's explaining this. It starts in the negative. What will not bring us blessing or happiness? Look at the rest of verse 1. There's sort of this downward spiral in verse 1. First of all, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The word counsel there is referring to this idea of, of who or what are you letting influence you in your life? Who are you listening to? Who are you letting capture your imagination? Who or what are you getting help from? And, and we'll have more on that later, but the idea is, is who are you surrounding yourself with? Is it something that leads to blessing or something that leads to destruction? But then it goes further. Also the one who does not stand in the way of sinners. And that word way there is, is important. It's this idea of lifestyle, of behavior, of actions. Someone who talks like them, who arranges their time like them, who spends their money like them, who treats people like them. So blessed is not the one who stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of a scoffer. This is where that kind of spiral, it reaches its ultimate uh, fulfillment, this progression, because a scoffer is someone even more committed to evil than the wicked or the sinner that were listed earlier. And so that word sit is important in that phrase. It's this idea of being their companion belonging to them, being loyal to the scoffer. I would even go as far as to say it's talking about identity, finding your worth and your dignity in something outside of Christ. 
So the psalmist is saying to us, sort of in summary, happiness is possible, but sin won't make you happy. And we all know this to one degree or another. Sin promises to make you happy, but in the end it always ends in sorrow. It overpromises and underdelivers. And so if we believe that, which I, I think most of us here do, one person helped me see that there's a really important question that we have to ask. Why do we still pursue sins? If it's that black and white, why do we still pursue it? I think this psalm is showing us that one major reason is because we still believe deep down that it will make us happy and joyful. Anyone who looked at pornography did so in the moment because they thought it would make them happy. But no one looks back on that and says, man, I'm making really good choices with my life. I'm really proud of the person this is making me become. To, to take that even further, anyone who's unfaithful to their spouse did it in the moment because they wanted to. They thought in the moment it would give some relief, some new life, but no one looks back on that and says, man, I really want my children to, to become like that. You could say it for, for any of the pursuits in our life, of, of the pursuit of success, of the pursuit of, of accumulating more things. We do these because we believe they'll make us happy. But as we'll see in this psalm, and fascinatingly, as research is showing more and more, they don't. And so this psalm is calling us to test ourselves regularly. How is Satan showing us the bait but hiding the hook in the different pursuit of our, pursuits of our lives? So if that's not the way, if, if those are not the ways to find the uh, blessedness, what is it? This psalm's going to let me uh, say something that's going to make me sound really cool and trendy. The answer is meditation, but probably not the meditation you're thinking of. Look at verse 2. It says, but, and the Hebrew there is a, is a really heightened expression. The, the English doesn't quite capture it. It's, a, it's an emphatic but. His delight is in the law. The word there is Torah. It can mean kind of the law, the first five books, or it can mean all of God's word. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So it's talking about biblical meditation. Popular meditation says to, to empty your mind. It's about emptying your mind. Biblical meditation is to fill your mind with Christ and with God. There's another important word, though, in that verse, and that is delight. Those who delight in God's word. The author has a really good understanding of human psychology and anthropology here. This idea of delight. We are lovers more than we are thinkers or doers. Our loves drive us. So if we're going to make this the center of our life, we're going to need to delight in it. Otherwise, we won't be sustained. But what the question is then, what if I don't delight in the law of the Lord or the, the word of God? What if I don't get much out of my reading of it? What if there's a thousand other things I delight in more than being in God's word with God's people? And if we're honest, most of us can relate. So then we got to ask, how can we grow our affections for being with the Lord and his word? Well, how are loves formed? Can you just kind of snap your fingers and start loving something more? Well, typically not. Often our loves need to be trained. It's similar to training actually your physical appetite. Let's say you're wanting to eat a little healthier. What do you do? Do you just force your hungers to change? No, it takes certain practices to eventually develop habits. Did you know that through regularly eating differently, you can eventually train your appetite to habitually hunger after different types of food? There's so much more I could say about that, but it's a good segue into how this psalm actually gives us clues 
on how to deepen our love for God and his word. The two ways that it gives, this is going to sound redundant, are through meditating on God's word, but also through playing the tape forward. So first of all, through meditation. There's a close connection between, in, in verse 2, between delighting in God's word and meditating on God's word. It's, this, it's almost this idea of it's self-reinforcing, the Bible is. The more you give yourself to meditate on it, the more you will delight in it. There's, there's even passages where it talks about your word um, brings life to my soul. So we need to talk a little bit more about meditating on God's word and what that can look like. If God's word is the primary tool he's given us to make us more like his son um, the, and more into where we're created to be, we all know this, but we, then that's where we need to be going for our life. But the problem is most of us have, as one person has said, a read, run, and forget approach to the Bible. Our lives are so full of activity, information, responsibilities, worries, input, people that we quickly forget our morning reading or quickly forget the weekly sermon, even if we preached it. And that's why God has told us not just to read or hear his word, but to meditate on his word. Meditate means to reflect on it, to ponder it, to mull it over, to talk about it, to reread it, to rehear it, to say it to others, to let others say it to us. One of my favorite passages that I think captures this well is from Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and might. Keep these words that I'm commanding you today in your heart. How are we going to do that? Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you are away. When you lie down and when you rise, bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It almost, it's this all-encompassing approach to each day almost as making yourself, putting yourself in the way of God's word all the day. So there's, I think, four categories that that passage shows us on how to meditate on God's word. It's, it's to keep it in our heart and mind, to uh, have God's word in our eyes, on our lips, and in our ears. Let me just quick run through each of those. And all of these kind of make us, it's a long way from just that read, run, and forget mentality. So having it on your mind and your heart, one, one easy way for this is to memorize scripture, to have a passage or a verse that you're memorizing. It's just a helpful way to have it just bouncing around in your head all day and applying it. Another way is to, to pray through a passage. As you're reading a passage, don't just read it and think about it, but start praying over the passage. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God, thank you that you are my shepherd. God, I, I go, often go to other things to be my shepherd, and they leave me in want. But in you I shall not. Just stopping and, and praying over each verse as we read it. It also can help to reduce some of our other unnecessary input that we often have in our lives and increase our input of God's word. But having God's word, not in our mind and heart, but also in our eyes, having ways that, that our eyes are continually having God's word in front of them in different ways with things around the house or um, just regular moments during the day where you stop and, and read something. Having it on our lips, saying it out loud, singing it out loud, talking about it with others, with your family. That's this, talking about it in community, being in community. That's why community is such an important part of the way our church is set up telling other people about what God is teaching you. And finally, in your ears, Deuteronomy 6 talks about listening to it, 
listening to sermons, listening even to scripture as you drive in the car. Again, being in community, hearing others talk about it. It can be so helpful to hear someone else talk about a passage and we'll see it from an angle we never did. It's kind of that garbage in, garbage out principle. So much of our meditation in a day is on the worries, criticisms, lusts, and busyness of our lives. It's, you know, going back to that first phrase, walking in the counsel of the wicked. That's that so often can describe what our day-to-day life of our mind looks like. And it leads to restlessness, impatience, our worst versions of ourselves. Friends, we need input management. We need to be aware of what we are putting our hearts and our minds in front of. When God's word goes into our minds, God's words will come out of our life, our speech, and our actions. And so the idea of, of meditating on God's word to, to deepen our love for it. But the other thing this psalm shows to, to, to give us more delight in it is to pr- play the tape forward. That's that idea of just looking at the, the logical end of any decision we make and what consequences they have, what results they have, which leads more to the final question of this psalm. If these are the two choices we have to pursue joy, the way of the sinner or the way of the righteous, we need to ask what results are each of these choices getting us? Essentially, how is that going for you? And that's the last four um, verses of this passage are really asking, how is that going for you? Those different approaches we can have. And the author in these last four verses is really, I think, trying to make it as easy and simple as possible for us. There is a dramatic contrast given in the last uh, verses of this psalm. The first picture he gives is that of a tree. Look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. I think it's worth just kind of slowing down and going through that verse line by line. First of all, he's a tree. This this image of steadiness and strength and rootedness as opposed to the other image that the author is going to give. But this tree is planted. A better translation is the tree is transplanted. It's moved from one area to another, and it's a passive thing. It's something that is done to us when we are engaged in God's word. And that's such a hopeful image that we can change and that we can be uprooted out of a, a situation in our lives you know, we might be in and, and can be re-rooted in something better. Where is it rooted? It's rooted and planted by streams of water. It's not replanted in a garden. It's not replanted in a field of fertile soil, but by the stream. What a picture of dependence that that is. We need to be, to, to fully function well, we need to be right next to the stream, drinking of it all the time. We're not made to need his word and, and live out his word just some of the time, but constantly. And then it says, such a person bears fruit. This helps us see that it's not just a, a personal endeavor. This is a, a communal thing. That word for fruitfulness is a very communal in nature. It's bearing fruit in the community of God's people, bearing fruit where we live, work, and play. And this, so we, we, we engage in God's word, not just for ourselves, but for each other. And I love this. It bears fruit in season. Just because we're in God's word doesn't mean things are always perfect or, you know, easy in our life. There are seasons that we have in our life of unfruitfulness and, and not seeing the fruit of things, and it's difficult. But it doesn't end there. It says, but whose leaf does not wither. So maybe there's not fruit, but the leaf does not wither. The tree does not die. 
They're still grounded in finding joy even in a hard season. And finally it says, such a person prospers. So I think we can say from Psalm 1 that there is a type of prosperity gospel that the Bible puts forward. It's not the health and wealth kind of prosperity gospel that is often trumpeted in our broader Christian circles and is, is not biblical, but it's talking about a flourishing life, a, a life internally of character, a, a people of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and the whole fruit of the Spirit. Living in accordance to God's design, it says, will bring us more life. In our marriage, it'll make us a better spouse. In our parenting, a better parent. In our relationships, a better friend. At, our, at work, bringing more meaning to our work. In our personal life, more wholesome. But the psalm isn't done yet. On the one hand, there's the tree. But on the other hand, the contrasting image is not a bush, not a plant, not a vine. But look at verses 4 and 5. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff, that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So it contrasts the tree with chaff. What is chaff? I think most of you know, you know, before there were combine harvesters, there was the pitchfork, and you had this pile um, of the threshed grain, and it had the, the seed in it, but also had this, these kind of fragments of dust, and you'd toss it up on a windy day, and the, the dust was meaningless, rootless, weightless, useless, and it was the wind would cast it aside, and the grain was heavy enough that it would fall and create two piles. And so that word actually occurs eight times in the Old Testament, and six of the eight times it's referring to, it's a picture of God's enemies and what he's going to do to his enemies. So like I said, the author is trying to make our choice as easy as possible by comparing a tree to chaff. I kind of have mixed emotions as I process that image of chaff. It, it, in one sense, it's very sobering, but on, on the other hand, there's, there's, a, there's part of it that's encouraging. It's humbling, but it's also scandalous. So let me explain each of those in turn. It's sobering. That idea of the chaff is very sobering. It's a stark de description of judgment. Cast aside, meaningless and useless. It says they will not stand in the judgment nor in the congregation of the righteous. And the Bible will elaborate on this, saying the unbeliever will experience separation from God, being sent outside, as Jesus says, and away from the presence of the Lord. It's a fire that burns eternally that is also an outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Dante, Dante caught the despair of this in his divine comedy in the words he inscribed over the entrance to hell, all hope abandon ye who enter here. And perhaps the most sobering of all, it is everlasting. It is final. There is no turning back. As Dan reminded us a few weeks ago, this should make our hearts weep for those in our lives who do not follow Jesus and know him and fill us with compassion to tell them about him. It should lead us to think often of eternity and everyone's eternal destiny. As C.S. Lewis said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. 
and, and the psalm kind of puts this well in the way it, the first word and the last word of the psalm, the first word is blessed, but then the last word of the psalm is perish. So there's two ways this psalm puts before us, and there is no third way, and those two ways part forever. So it's sobering, very sobering. But there is also an element which we can say that image is encouraging, especially when we think about the persecution that goes on often of believers in Christ by the enemies of God. Obviously, the situation in Afghanistan comes immediately to mind, but Nigeria um, is having, Christians are still having difficulty, and it's all around the world. And um, even here in America, there are ways we can experience persecution. And so, being reminded that, that the enemies, the, the persecutors, will, will in the end be like chaff, just blown away, um, can encourage us to give perspective to our suffering. So it's encouraging in that sense, but then for, I think for all of us personally, it should be humbling. We should all recognize that we all deserve this. We are all who walk in the counsel of the wicked in our lives. We stand in the way of sinners often. We sit in the seat of scoffers. We don't meditate on God's word the way or as often as we should. We try to find blessedness in all the wrong places. We deserve to be treated like chaff. And that is where the the final observation comes into play, that this is a scandalous picture as well. What do I mean by that? There's obviously a heaviness to that image, and it's much like the heaviness we see as our Savior approached his death. In in his death, the wrath of God against the sins of mankind was going to be poured out against him. And there's raw language in the Gospels. It says Jesus was greatly distressed, very troubled, very sorrowful in the book of Mark. And that verb that's translated to be troubled is used only a few times in the New Testament. And one commentator says it describes the confused, a restless, half-distracted state which is produced by physical derangement or by mental distress as grief, shame, and disappointment. Jesus prayed that the cup of his father that he was, was going to be given to him would be removed. Jesus' prayer was heard, all his prayers were heard, but it was refused. For there was no other way for God's plan to go forward. So like the chaff, tossed up in the wind and swept aside, our Savior was despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows, like one from whom people hide their faces. Even though he walked in the counsel of the Lord, he was treated as if he had walked in the counsel of the wicked. Even though he stood in the way of the Lord, he was treated as if he stood in the way of sinners. Even though he sat in the seat of the Lord, he treated it, was treated as though he sat in the seat of scoffers. He was the perfect embodiment of Psalm 1 righteousness so that we, though deserving to be tossed aside like chaff, can become trees planted by water. I think the last line of this psalm, the last verse of this psalm, is, is almost a preview of that grace and of that care. It says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That word, we can often quickly skim over that, a phrase like that, that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. It's not just talking about that the Lord is informed about the righteous, but that word is a powerful word. It means to care about, that he cares about us. And we see that most fully on the cross. So friends, this changes everything about how we approach Psalm 1. This allows us to approach Psalm 1 
uh, much like I was able to approach my eighth grade basketball tryouts. So my eighth grade basketball coach, he would every year pick two captains before tryouts even happened. In fact, he'd pick the captains um, at the end of seventh grade. And in God's providence that year, I was able to be picked as one of the captains at the end of seventh grade. So I knew, you know, I'd worked so hard to make the seventh grade team, but I knew even before eighth grade started that I was going to make the team. Now, what did that do for me? Did that mean that that summer I just relaxed and took it easy and didn't work on my game? Not at all. Though I had already made the team, I still worked to become the best player I could, not to earn my way onto the team, but for a number of reasons, to express gratitude to my coach who had put himself out there for me, but also to enjoy my experience on the team. Uh, I loved the game. I wanted to be better, and I wanted to help the team flourish and be an integral part, and so I needed to keep uh, working on my own game. And that is how, in Christ, we approach the teaching of Psalm 1 and take it home into our lives. We pursue the blessedness of daily watering our souls with meditation on God's word, both individually and in community, not to earn anything, but so that we can enjoy the deepest blessedness and joy of communion with God and fruitfulness and flourishing of life, of living more into our design. So, as trees already planted by streams of water, friends, let's keep drawing of the living water of Christ that will truly nourish our lives. I love the way one pastor, James Forsyth, he, he describes Psalm 1 in one sentence. God has called us to be happy in him as we live for him. God has called us to be happy in him as we live for him. Friends, the choices couldn't be more clear before us. Let us choose the way of Christ and the cross. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, just the clarity of this passage and how Simple yet profound yet challenging um, it is to us, Lord, because even though the choice, as we see here, is so easy, we in our sin uh, struggle, and we choose the wrong way, the way of the sinner and of the wicked, uh, more often than we'd like to admit, Lord. So I pray that you would build our awareness and grow our dependence upon you to, to find delight in being in your word with your people and living out of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.